145th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 65 years since Australia's first ever test match against Pakistan, and the first day remains the slowest in the history of test cricket. 95 runs scored in five and a half hours. But at least the Karachi crowd did get the consolation of seeing Australia skittled for 80. Thanks for joining us again on Reverse Swept Radio. If you like what you hear, please do tell a friend or leave us a review over on your favourite podcasting uh, platform. In this episode, we are going to be talking about a retirement and a and a wonder ball. Um, I'm going to be delving back into the history of cricket at the Olympics, a very short history of cricket at the Olympics. And we're going to be reviewing uh, Tim Brooks's book, cricket on the continent um now andy your eyes have been caught by the retirement of a feisty competitor yeah so that's how quick info's biography describes gareth batty i think for anyone who ever actually watched him and is most fired up feisty competitor feels like an understatement he always looked like he was playing angry Mm. um and he retired last week after a 24-year career that saw him take close to 700 first class wickets i think that gives you a sense of his uh, you know that is that shows some endurance and he really did never give up um at the age of 39 and 11 years since his previous test match he got recalled for the tours of bangladesh and india and it, it really made me think of the one test wonders podcast uh, we, we reviewed last episode and you know, when they asked the players, when did you give up? And, and I thought yeah. it, it did say quite something about Batty that he never did. You know, he kept trying and, and he got uh, brought back into the England fold. Um, his personality also very much that of a natural leader. So um, at various points in Surrey's recent history where they had uh, some kind of serious, difficult points, it was him they turned to, to captain. And even most recently, he was leading their 2020 side. Um, so yes, a um, uh, a good career, and he goes off now into the coaching setup at Surrey. Would it be would it be unfair to kind of use the phrase of journeyman for for Gareth Batty simply because he's one of those people who seems to have been around? I mean, he has been around kind of for as long as I can remember, given the longevity of of his career, and he never really he was he's kind of in my mind part of that generation of English spinners who were kind of solid but not spectacular. The, mm. the king of whom was obviously Ashley Giles, who, you know, solid but not spectacular was kind of his his mantra when it came to when it came to spin bowling. But, you know, that, that generation of, of England spinners throughout the kind of late 90s and into the 2000s who, you know, never really kind of set the set, set the world on fire. That's always, I mean, am I kind of unfairly pigeonholing him when no, I, I think I of him think, that way? You know, if I want to put a less romantic spin on his call-up as a 39-year-old, the honest truth is that the cupboard was pretty bare. Yeah, there I mean, no it does options. not say great things about English spinning. But what I think I would say, I think of him oddly as a bit of a Collingwood, you know, a player who made, yes. got every ounce out of their Ginger ability. Ginger as well. Um, a ginger, yeah, and I think as a, as a, um, you know, as cricketers like ourselves, you know, I've always had perhaps... I love watching the players with vast natural talent, but I relate more to those who get every bit out of their ability. Also, I think really interesting that he kept going in T20s. There's always this interesting feature that when 2020 came onto the scene, everyone thought, God, this is going to be a nightmare for spinners. And actually, canny spinners, of which mm. Batty was you know, extremely canny, found they could be very effective um, in the format. So, um, yes, no, uh, someone who certainly made the best of best of what he had. Um, and I could imagine he'd be, uh, I wouldn't take him lightly if I was a young youngster in the Surrey Academy. I imagine he will give you robust feedback. 
Yes. Now, sort of t- talking about you know going from one um, one artist, one bowling artist, you, you've been um, reveling in a bit of bowling magic. Yeah, I, so I've been following the um, so the India Australia um, women's series um, that's been that's been happening at the moment. Um, the in the one day, um, India posted just 119 in their innings against Australia, so they were kind of under pressure to to start well with with the ball. And um, Q Chikapande, um, her she was opening opening the bowling bowled the first over, first ball went for four, second ball. Truly, one of the most remarkable balls I have ever seen in in cricket, and in an era when we, you know, are able to see highlight reels on YouTube of you know things, crazy things happening in the world of cricket, you sometimes kind of get a bit, um, uh, you know, kind of anaesthetized to absolutely spectacular moments. But this was really one of them. So it was a ball that started a, a good half a foot outside off stump. Um, it swung back at the last possible moment to hit the top of middle i mean we're talking extraordinary prodigious late swing here there was a lot of cloud cover that day which helped but nevertheless to actually exploit that in that way is is quite remarkable so Alyssa healy was the was the batsman um she is very rarely caught flat-footed and all she was able to i mean it just the ball kind of humiliated her all she was able to do she was gonna the shaping up to leave it and all she was able to manage was the sort of late stab when she realized that it was kind of honing back in um, on her on her stumps it's the kind of thing that I've watched a dozen times over the last um, over the last week and you just kind of sit there wondering how on earth how on earth that happened and you know kind of how I, I saw it live and actually how lucky you are to be sitting there and you're kind of going oh first over of the innings you know they're just going to be sort of you know bit of bit of jostling bit of bedding in and suddenly that comes out of um, some count comes out of nowhere as I say you know it's kind of a, a reminder that there are still moments in the game when you think you've seen everything and watched every youtube highlight there are still moments in the game that can just leave you absolutely kind of awestruck it's a moment that made me think that in swing doesn't always perhaps get what it deserves i think we worship away swing Mm. and you know you, you leave the batsman late and you get the nick behind um, but there is something glorious about outrageous in-swing like this. I, I also think, by the way, this was a great advert. We, we, there's lots that's wrong with Twitter, but you know the, the joys of cricket Twitter. Because I don't think I necessarily would have seen this without cricket Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's not a series I've been able to follow closely. And um, it's the kind of wonderful moments that uh, you go onto cricket Twitter and people will ensure that you've seen. Has this series been... Um, uh, given sort of all the challenges of sort of putting live sport on in, in the last year or so, I mean, has this series been getting sort of, sort of do you think particular attention in Australia? Or? It has been getting a fair bit of attention in um, in Australia actually, and certainly a lot of the news outlets have been covering it as strongly as they have the um, you know the men's game um, or what little of the men's game is is happening uh, at the moment. It's interesting that you know places like uh, the ABC have now made the concerted decision that they are going to um, call. Uh, you know, women's cricket, women's women's cricket, and men's cricket, men's cricket, rather than men's cricket, cricket. And I think changes in mentality like that have really kind of elevated the opportunities for the for the women's game to be to be covered. The other thing I'd just say about this ball is that I also think that you're right about away swing being seen as being the the kind of the pinnacle of of swing at times. There's also, I think, this slight attitude that large amounts of swing are quite vulgar somehow you know that actually the thing that's that's sort of subtle and skilled is those smaller variations that really deceive batsmen at you know a pace and this is a reminder it's very often you actually see people try to get 
swing of this you know kind of of this of this size um and again wonderful to see someone doing it and doing it just to such you know to such impact Recently, there has been a sort of gathering feeling amongst the cricketing authorities that maybe cricket should go back to the Olympics. Well, whenever you look forward, it's a good idea to start by looking back. And Toby is going to look back at the interesting and perhaps slightly inauspicious occasion of when cricket did appear at that great festival of sport. So it's a pretty well-worn um, trivia question. Which nation is the reigning Olympic silver medalist at, at cricket? And most people would, you know, if you were thinking off the top of your head, you'd think it was South Africa or England or Australia or India. Um, the answer, spoiler alert, is that it's that it's France. And as Andy uh, said, as, as the ICC actually throws their weight behind um, cricket being included in the 2028 um, Olympics, um, this is an opportunity to look back at the at the pretty farcical moment when when France became the uh, silver medalists and England won the gold. Um, now we've got a gold and silver medalist there. No one ever asks who the bronze medalists are, and often you have you know three people or teams on the podium at the Olympics, and that's because there isn't actually a bronze medalist at cricket, and that's because only two teams competed in the 1900 Summer Olympics cricket tournament. They were originally scheduled to be four, so originally it was going to be Belgium, France, Great Britain and the Netherlands but at the last minute Belgium and the Netherlands uh, withdrew they were protesting about the fact that they had uh, bid to co-host the games with France but that had been rejected and in a fit of pique they decided to to withdraw make a strong statement and withdraw from the cricket tournament um they were you know just just following though in a in a in a kind of rich history a pretty poor participation of, of cricket in the Olympics. So the first modern Olympics had happened four years before in 1896. And despite cricket being advertised as part of the Games, it didn't actually proceed simply because they couldn't find a single team that was interested in playing in the in the tournament. So I'm curious in that the, 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 if the teams that were originally going to take part in 1900 did take part, you would have had very much a European tournament, wouldn't you? Mm. And I, I wonder, part of that's presumably geography that you know some of the more established cricket nations wouldn't have travelled with the team. I, I just wonder if it's a, it's a shame that there was no enterprising you know Australian expat who thought, look guys like let's gather together and we'll together. probably win this yeah. yeah exactly well i think the the other thing to, to, to know about the olympics at this point is it, it wasn't really seen as a pinnacle in the same way as it is now so the tournament had only been around in its modern you know incarnation for for four years um, at that point when the tournament was given to france in 1900 the reason it was given to france is because the um kind of international exhibition was happening in france that year and they thought well we might as well tack some sport onto the side of it so it was hardly a moment where teams were kind of clamoring to be a part of um you know this kind of sporting moment winning a gold at that olympics frankly didn't 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 mean quite a lot uh, didn't didn't mean very much um and and actually you know following on from that theme the teams that represented britain and and france were were hardly the nation's greatest cricketing talent so the, the british team was a an amateur club side called the devon and somerset wanderers um they were heading over to france for what seems like a kind of combination of a booze cruise and a few um kind of a few a few village cricket games kind of shoved in between when they weren't too weren't too hung over um they went on a team every single summer. I 
really think it was just a group of friends who liked going abroad and having an excuse to get away from their wives and children by saying it was a cricket tour. Um, and this one just happened to coincide with the Olympics. So they were in France anyway, and the Olympic, I think the Olympic Committee actually approached them and said, hey, do you want to come and play a game? Um, and we'll see how that kind of confusion ended up, ended up later. At least, though, the British side was made up of people from Britain. So the French side was almost exclusively... Um, expats and actually the core of the team were workers who had been sent to France to build the Eiffel Tower uh, English workers who had been sent to France and they had clubbed joined together formed a club and this club formed the basis of the of the French national national side so actually you've got two teams that are very much not representative of their respective respective nat- uh, nations this is a poor poor show on my part but I hadn't appreciated the role that English workers played in building the Eiffel Tower so well, there you go. There you go. There Look, go. If, you, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna press me on what what part of the Eiffel Tower they built, I'm gonna leave you sadly disappointed at my lack of knowledge there. But anyway, that's something you can read up on in your own time. Um, the so it was all a bit Im- improvised, and the uh, the match itself continues in that in that vein. So at the very last minute, the captains got together and decided that it wouldn't be an eleven aside game; it'd be a twelve aside game. Um, presumably, maybe they just had an extra player and they didn't want to uh, uh, disappoint them. You know. I was going to say that that sounds that totally fits with your theory of this being a fun club tour, which is that if someone's come on tour, they quite want to play. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think I think it was exactly that. But what it has led to is quite an, an interesting um, kind of historical phenomenon, which is the st- scorecards for the game, which were printed in advance, have all got the twelfth players written on by hand, and apparently it become quite a collector's item because of that sort of unique touch to each to each um to each uh scorecard so it was a two um innings a game side played um played on a velodrome of all you know of all places the kind of grass in the middle of a velodrome um and really it was a pretty bog standard game until the fourth um until the fourth innings so we're not going to go blow by blow because it was frankly you know just be like you know covering a a standard amateur uh, club game but in the last innings the french needed a hundred and 85 um to win now this didn't this didn't go to plan they were um 11 for 10 in no time so 11 runs for 10 wickets usually they'd have been all out but of course they've got that cunning extra batsman up there up their sleeve um at this point uh, on the on the last afternoon they decide that they are going to play for a draw just to really make this a kind of thrilling end and they reckon that they probably pulled off a miracle when they get to five minutes from the end of the game uh, from the scheduled end of the game without being bowled out but that final wicket did fall and England won by 158 runs. So England have well would have been in some ways given all the other problems with this a draw would somehow felt like the most appropriate very appropriate exactly exactly but as it is Great Britain win the Olympic gold medal to great fanfare but actually that's not the case now it gets even weirder okay so after the game the British team are presented with silver medals and the French with bronze medals. Both teams wonder what on earth this is all about. Why are they being given medals at the end of this game? And it turns out that neither of them think that realize that they're actually playing in the Olympics. They think that they're there just to play a random game as part of the World Fair that's happening in, in Paris at the same time. Um, so they suddenly find out kind of almost by accident that they've been playing in the Olympics um, afterwards. And I don't know why it is that they were awarded silver and bronze rather than rather than gold and silver. But later 
it was upgraded to to gold and silver. And to add to the kind of um, slightly you know strange element of, of celebration or not around these Olympic victories. Um, no major British newspapers reported on the game at all, which I think goes back to your early point, Andy, about, you know, why was it that other nations weren't clamouring to send send their teams? Well, no one really knew it was happening. No one really kind of cared, you know. Um, it, there wasn't that much honour from winning the Olympics at this at this point. Um, however, most of the, all of the players did receive a model of the British-built Eiffel Tower, which is obviously something that they would have taken home and treasured on their mantelpiece. What I was going to say, you said the scorecards were collectible. I would love to see one of the original Olympic Eiffel Towers. Olympic Eiffel Towers, exactly. Really, um, what you wanted to do is uh, hang them around someone's neck. That would be a lovely... Uh, <laughs> lovely Quite a painful necklace, I'd imagine. Um, so... Uh, again, adding to the kind of curiosity factor, despite the fact that this is the first um, Olympic, you know, Olympic medal cricket match, the game does not hold first class status since it wasn't an 11 a side game and was across two days. So two day games don't have first class status. Um, it's also the only time that cricket has ever been played um, at the Olympics. And so to go back to where we started when we think about the ICC's push to include uh, cricket in the 2028 um, Olympics, if they're looking for a model f- through which not to do it, I think they need to look no further than, than back to the year 1900. <laughs> The review, and for this, the 145th episode of Reverse Swept Radio, we have been reading Cricket on the Continent by Tim Brooks, published in 2016. Um, Tim Brooks is a writer who specialises on associate cricket. Um, He's also a cricket development consultant who has worked for ICC Europe and with the Norwegian and German cricket authorities. Cricket on the Continent is a book that focuses on the failures and successes of cricket's development in continental um, Europe. Andy, what were you expecting from this um, book and kind of what what did it deliver? So I think I had expected a little bit more of a kind of jolly through European cricketing history, sort of anecdotes, etc. And we do get, there are some great histories and in particular some biographies of great associate players who've been unjustly forgotten. But really, given the biography of Tim Brooks that you just set out, it's a book about developing the game. And in some ways, it's one of the, I would say, by far the most forensic book I've read on that topic. Um, You might remember a few episodes we did, uh, a book about the history of Irish cricket. And um, for all that book's kind of prose, one of the things I was frustrated in reading it was I was like, but I don't know how the game grew. You know, I don't know. You wanted more analysis. There was there was a lot of Mary Japes in that in the pub in that book, and and probably not enough analysis. Yeah, exactly, not enough. And you know, this is a book that if if I was sitting there as president of the Vanuatu Cricket Association, I would sit down with a copy of this book, and you know, it would it would give me it, it would give me a blueprint. But but what I mean. Let's get into that blueprint, I guess. I mean, what, 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 what do we learn about how the game develops and, and perhaps as importantly doesn't develop? Well, I think there were, we, we learn a lot from the, from the sort of stories, but as you say, also from the analysis that, that Brooks um, gives us. There's an interesting kind of balance between the difference between sort of top-down and bottom-up developments of the, of, of the game. You know, the kind of bottom-up being these amazing stories of how one 
you know incident or one person brought cricket to a, to a new country and how the work of individuals has really sort of championed um the game you know there's the the story of the games master at Zuoz college in in switzerland in 1923 who really kind of championed the game in that country and and you know managed to in a way create a kind of grassroots momentum for the game then on the other side of things um we've got this ongoing narrative about the ICC, this kind of top-down, what what should the game's governing body, what has it done and what should it be doing to encourage the, the sport in new in, in new contexts? And one of the, maybe we should, we should dive into the ICC a bit because Brooks is fascinating, you know, on this. He talks about the history of the ICC and how, you know, fundamentally it's been a body that was started up to protect the interests of, of colonial cricket. It was completely governed by um you know basically in england australia and india completely completely governed and actually that they really don't see it as, as being in their interest to develop the game in 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 europe and so that the icc has kind of fundamentally failed i think it's fair to say cricket in kind of continental um continental uh, europe as well and i think it's this sense isn't it that the icc when it does finally get into this, changes approach so often that it causes havoc in for some of these countries' path of development. I mean, the ICC has huge power both in terms of funding, but mostly, oh, perhaps mostly in terms of just pure opportunity. I mean, will you let these countries play with the bigger countries? Yep. Um, yep. And I think Brooks is really good at this point about how you can develop steadily as a nation for a while, but unless you peak at a moment when those opportunities are there, you might miss your moment. And actually another country that happens to have a good tournament um, or, or not will, will sort of will have its moment instead. Well, that was what I thought was really um, interesting about the way Brooks writes is that we we often hear about these decisions the ICC makes about who is going to qualify for certain tournaments and how. And what Brooks does really well is to articulate actually the impact that that has on individual nations and their abilities to grow the game kind of, you know, um, within themselves and how often the kind of, you know, slow and steady approach. I mean, I think he cites at one point that, you know, cricket in Germany has grown exponentially over the last couple of decades in terms of the number of people playing. But for the ICC, that just isn't a priority because they don't look at Germany and think, well, in 20 years time, this could be a massive commercial market for cricket in the same way that the US is. And therefore, the ICC are not interested in the same way in kind of funding um, funding cricket in, in, in Germany. Um, the other thing I that... I think, just as a bit of an aside, there is this obsession with cracking the US in every sport. Yes. And it always strikes me as this problem that if every sport wants to crack the US, you obviously create a level of competition that makes it, you know, almost impossible. Yeah, totally. Well, the other, um, you know, the, the kind of factors that have impacted on development of the game, you know, as I was saying a minute ago, yes, they're sort of top down. It's about the ICC, it's about the governing bodies. But there are also these kind of curious individual moments that really um, sort of uh, change the course of the game in a particular in a particular nation. So there's a quite an interesting narrative about the fact that Hitler hated cricket because he thought that, you know, it was a sign of Englishness and Britishness. Um, and so that the Nazis did everything they could to actually wipe it out in the territories they occupied, including destroying all of the equipment they came, you know, came across and, and, and destroying and destroying and destroying grounds. In Denmark, on the other hand, cricket was seen as this form of resistance to Nazism. Um, and so it flourished during the during the war as this kind of underground thing where people were thinking, what is the, the least kind of Nazi 
holistic thing if that's a word that we can that we can do sort of in 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 defiance and there's the amazing story of um frederick Firstlev and his um you know his continuing to make to make willow bats in 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 denmark to ensure that the game uh, c- can continue and then just last what one last one in in belgium one of the major grounds was lost i think this is in the kind of 1940s um after a ball was hit through a through a toilet window of, a, of an adjoining house and the neighbor complained and the police came around and kind of shut down the shut down the game and that had a massive impact on the potential development of the game in that area because suddenly there wasn't wasn't a ground and so i think what comes out of this narrative is the sense that you know the germination of the game is so fragile that it needs an approach from someone like the icc that's really going to you know be robust and sort of help it um help it along your point about Belgium is a sort of, you know, it's a funny anecdote, but it's also this core issue that having a place to play is fundamental to development. And you can only do that if you build a sort of local stake in the game. Yep. Where it, One example of where it failed was also in Portugal, where you know, the expat Brits didn't really bring the locals in. They lost their ground in Lisbon partly as a result, because why would you as a local care if, if there wasn't that investment? Um, well- and ditto in ditto in Italy. I thought there was a, a um, amazing. I'd never really thought about cricket in Italy or thought of it as being an Italian thing. But but according to Brooks, you know, cricket was sort of neck and neck with football um, back at the beginning of the of the twentieth century. And actually, what stymied that? And this goes back to this question of you know cricket being a in in terms of the view of continental Europe, cricket being a fundamentally British game. That the Brits, the expats who had taken it there. Um, were actually quite keen that the locals did not take hold of it because they wanted to keep it as an an exclusive game, uh, an exclusive British game that wasn't kind of you know sullied by by Italians sort of taking taking hold of it and and, and making it their own. And and I find Brooks's hypothesis on this really convincing because he makes the point that you can't just talk about geography here because if it was about geography, well you know France would be a huge cricket lover and we know despite their role in the Olympics that that's uh, that's Mm. not the case. And he actually I think makes a very persuasive case that actually the Netherlands and Denmark, um, for cultural reasons, the the Englishness did appeal in the the way that it didn't um, in other jurisdictions. So one thing we should just touch on is is this question of um, kind of uh, na- native cricketers versus versus expats and a lot of um, you know particularly firstly the game brought by um, English you know often you know soldiers stationed in Europe you know it was fundamentally still a game played by English people now there's a lot of expats from the subcontinent living in in Europe who who play the game as well what did you think about Brooks's thoughts about how that might, um, you know, develop in terms of trying to get cricket something that is kind of held onto by the local population and not just by expats. Well, the example in Germany, I think, was really interesting, where the extent to which Afghan refugees, amongst others, have led to a surge in interest in the game. And I thought what was fascinating is that the national government suddenly, um, a government that is thinking about this whole issue of how do I. Uh, create a sense of community between yep. uh, native population who suddenly sees this sport that everyone is rushing to play and suddenly says, God, I'm interested in this. Can we fund it? Can we help? Um, so I thought that, that that was a really interesting theme, that actually the expert interest in the game can lead governments to care as well. I think part of this comes back, though, to your point about the ICC's vision of what cricket should look like. And I think Brooks challenges this and says, well, actually... It's not about um, 
he, he at one point makes the point about you know we should stop becoming obsessed that the German and Danish team should all be you know blonde haired blue you know yeah, this yeah. is a really backward way of looking at cricket and that actually um, the uh, excitement of just getting numbers and and uh, enthusiasm for the game um, is absolutely key to that. So that is um, Tim Brooks's cricket on the continent. It's both, I think, a good a good read, but also an amazing um, kind of reference work. So he has a little section on the history of the game in every European uh, country, which is a really really interesting thing to to flick through and i'll certainly be dipping back uh back into that and that was the 145th episode of reverse swept radio find us on twitter at reverse swept leave us a uh, review wherever you listen to your podcast and join us next time